Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. How are you, Tom? Fantastic, Christopher. Okay, you and I have talked about this before. With your work with Much Music and my work as a radio producer over the years, we have occasionally found ourselves in some really great moments. So we have a great moment this week that I experienced, but also is just a great interview for everyone to hear. It's with Barry Morris and Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees. So let's set the stage. It's June of 2001, and my friend Marilyn Dennis and myself, longtime colleague, we're flying down to Miami to interview the Bee Gees in their home studio in Miami, Florida. It really is one of those pinch me moments. And as you'll hear, it's also an incredibly raucous and fun and kind of chaotic interview, but it also has some very moving moments as well. So I can't wait to play that interview, one of the best from our archives coming up on this week's episode. Also coming up, in the last couple of episodes, we've talked specifically about some of the best Canadian songs ever recorded and written, and we've got a couple more because, quite frankly, we ran out of time with the first two shows, and we have some great, great stories, including a number one song, a huge song written by a friend of yours, Christopher, that we're going to talk to, and we're going to hear his story about the genesis of that song. But first, the Bee Gees. With all your That's Jive talking the Bee Gees from 1975 from the album Main Course on Famous Lost Word. Love that song. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those wonderful, loose, wide-ranging and revealing interviews that Marilyn Dennis is the master of, and I don't need to tell you that, Tom. Think back to Coldplay, Beyonce, and some of the others that we have played in recent times. Now, the first job... I think, of any interviewer is really just to put the subject at ease. And she establishes that rapport almost instantly with people. Mm -hmm. So with the Brothers Gibb, you also have to do some artist herding or it gets out of control very easily, as you will hear. I've been there with the Brothers and they are a fascinating combination of smart, funny, serious, and absolutely loony. This interview shows it all. Marilyn leads them from their earliest days to their career peaks and their biggest heartbreak in seven segments. Now, listen closely, or some of the best rude remarks and wacky interplay will slip by you. (laughs) The interview begins, appropriately enough, with the band's family roots. It's very cold in here. I see that uh, Barry has a big sweater on, and I'm Canadian, and it's pretty chilly. No, that's just his his (laughs) chest. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't. I'm not wearing anything at all. Well, here we go. I want to go back, uh, if we can, just the time, Barry, when you were nine years old and your dad gave you a guitar. Okay, okay. And you started singing. Yes. And the guys joined in. And uh, well, we nothing else to do. I want to go yeah. back to that yeah. moment. Okay. Tell, tell us about that. Well, we, we used to sort of do things like um, uh, make microphones, fake microphones, uh, out of uh, brushes with tin cans on top. Just, uh, we just we were just infatuated with the whole concept of being a pop group. And I think that came from American music, uh, music like the Everly Brothers right. and uh, uh, people at that time. You know, Elvis Presley was just emerging. We were very, very young children, and we were very um, taken by 
this whole new thing called rock and roll, you know. So, but the harmonies um, were there. It, I mean, it just came so happened, naturally yeah. to to mm-hmm. you guys, which is really unusual, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. The harmonies were actually very natural. Um, we actually, uh, I think you'll find that in the Beatles harmonies too. There were sort of they weren't um, they weren't uh, taught harmonies. That mm-hmm. we just found them naturally. We didn't read music, so we just felt and, and, and fell into place, and that's where it's been all our life. Uh, you know. mm-hmm. So when that happened, Morris, when that happened, yeah. the story goes that you guys are you there? Yes, I'm here. I'm just putting my underwear. <laughs> Morris, I'm just going to the bathroom. Will you take over? Yes, I'll be right here. So when that happened, <laughs> is it a moment that you guys remember? I mean, is it is it one of those uh, turning points? Yeah, I rem- uh, yeah, people I'm write about it all the time. Well, yeah. actually, there was a guy outside the door writing about this at the time when we were, when we were <laughs> singing. What? what? No, well, actually, the first thing for me when I noticed what, what we were doing is yeah. when we, did, we sang a song called Lollipop in the bedroom, and we all sang different... The Barry started the, the melody, Robin came in on second half, and I came on high. And that's why we all knew where we had to be each time we sang a song. Right. And also Neil Sedaka, too, particularly in those days, was bringing there. out records with all the three... Well, he wasn't steady, there at the steady. time, no. <laughs> and he's here tonight. He, he, must have had the, yeah, he must have had the spare bed in the corner. So, so, does, so, so having said that, it just when you go in and you, you're in the studio and you're writing a song, mm-hmm. it, everybody knows what part to take. I mean, it just comes that naturally. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's what's so amazing to a lot of people. But we, just, yeah, but we go out of our way to make something an adventure, so whatever yeah. part anyone takes... We, we hope, hopefully, it's the first time they've ever taken that part, and it hasn't been done before. So we're always looking for something uh, that's harmonic, mm-hmm. but hasn't been that's but but isn't generic. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're always searching for yeah, that. Yeah, we don't. There's no role playing. There's no right. sort of well. Everyone looks for that right. part. Well, there's a lot of role, but not on the radio. Not on the radio. <laughs> no. But there's no sort now of. Now sounding like a therapy session, <laughs> you guys. Yes, it right? is. There's it's some right. things you can't see. <laughs> it sounds like therapy, but we digress. Yeah, it's going to be on the best of the Bee Gees home movies. Oh, man. As you can tell from that first segment, the guys were very loose and goofy, and it's rather difficult to keep that train on the track during this whole thing. But Marilyn does a great job, but there are, you can feel it. There are moments when it's just veering, careening off into mayhem, and I was about six feet away from Marilyn in the BG studio in Miami during this interview, and the guys were sitting in a small circle facing her, each holding their own microphone, which may have been our first mistake, right? It was almost would have been more controlled had we handed around or, or, or leaned forward with the mic to give them their answers. So they were right. both talking at once. But man, it was mayhem and it was fun. But as a radio producer, I also needed to try to make sure that we were keeping it on course too. But I can only do so much since I don't have a microphone and Marilyn does. So it's it's kind of down to her and she does an admirable job in a situation that I think probably I would have let get out of control because I would just been laughing too hard. Doesn't it feel a bit just like old-fashioned sibling rivalry at work? Like who who gets the attention, who gets the biggest laugh? Who can top whose joke? I mean, I, that's what I felt in the room with them. I think you're right there. But I also think it has a little bit to do with the fact that the brothers knew each other very well. But I also know that over the years, they didn't really, really get along. And so for this, in this session, I think it's kind of indicative of their relationship. This is how they got along. By goofing and by making each other laugh. Because the serious stuff would have just... Like, I just don't think they could be truly themselves with each other because there'd been so much water under the bridge and so many issues. And even when Barry is still, you know, the last one standing, and even he has said he wishes he had just gotten 
to kind of love his brothers a little bit more because they, they weren't close. And I think this, there's something about that in all this. Maybe I'm looking too deeply into it, but that's just my thought. Well, Barry was by far the most restrained in the interview that I did with them. And I think you hear that also in Marilyn's interviews. So, yeah, I yeah. think you're right. Um, in one of a series of listener questions during the interview, the brothers talk about their biggest dream come true. Yes, but first, Robin talks about the joy of songwriting. Songwriting's always been our forte, and we've always been songwriters first. And I think sticking at what we, we enjoy doing the best, and writing songs has always been yeah. important. Yeah. I think, if anything, any ingredients is there, it's the songwriting. So yeah. when you put an album like this together, and you, you put it together because you... that's. It's it's a great joy, but you don't go in there going. I hope I get a hit out of this song. It's just another well, yeah, expression. Think, yeah. well, well, I think all those all yeah. those dreams are there too. Yeah. yeah. You go in mm-hmm. thinking, God, I hope I get a hit out of this. It, yeah. uh, because um, the record company's sitting there. They're kind of going over their shoulder. You're not and, doing and it for you, the art. And your manager says, oh, no, that's not no, true. No. But our manager says the same thing. God, I hope you get a hit out of this. It's funny how many people say that. But actually, we actually love to record what we love to record and hope everybody else likes it. Yeah, You know, we never really go for what's already out there. But we are aware that there's a swirling sort of cottage industry going on around us, you know, cottage, if you will, for want of a better term. I got four We're going to go to another other line. We're going to go see and talk to Dolores in Toronto listening to Chum FM. Hey, Dolores. Hey. Question is, um, out of your whole career, what has been the the experience that made you really proud? You know, like your best experience so far. Would be different for each of you? You would be. Yeah. Probably would be, but I would say there's there's general ones like... um, like winning uh, uh, the British Music Award and the a lifetime roll, achievement. Yeah. Getting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yeah. Yeah. I think, is probably the, a dream come true. Now, that happened us. in 1997. It is. It did. Yeah. And, uh, and it's still happening. So far, we haven't been thrown out, <laughs> but it's coming. We were inducted then, and we're being abducted now. Robin, what about you? Uh, I think I have to say the same. That yeah. and getting the, uh, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, uh, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, yeah. which mm. was just before that, and yeah. uh, and in the same year we got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which win the uh, Brit Awards, mm-hmm. uh, yes. um, Contribution to Music Award in London. Yes, yes. Mm. Garbage Men Hall of Fame. I think <laughs> was my honour. Idiot of the year. <laughs> I think I think one of the greatest moments yeah. I think all of us would share in this one too is I, I think when we first had our very first number one was a feeling like no other. I mean, it's just, you never get used to those feelings mm-hmm. when you have a successful record. Mm-hmm. But the first one, particularly in England at the time, which was Massachusetts, yeah. that was a great moment for us. I think we, we never get over the idea of going on stage. Every yeah. time we go on stage, it's, it's a different kind of a buzz, but it's always, but it's the same as well. It's something we always look forward to. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you if you get goosebumps. Do you still get nervous? We, we Do you get, still? We get, yeah, That's we, why I wear acrylic tights. <laughs> See, you're going to be A. like that, wasn't you? Twice the fee. Twice, yes. <laughs> yes but you can move more free. You move so much more freely. You can, you can. Walk with a spring you in your step. Yes, you feel so agile. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you're prancing Gee, all over Robin, the I was going to vote for you as my favourite BG tonight, but you know. <laughs> you're don't do that. It's dangerous. <laughs> Chaos, Christopher. Chaos. Yeah. It's just nuts, Chaos. isn't it? More from the Bee Gees when Famous Lost Words returns. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic as we feature highlights of an interview with Barry, Morris, and Robin Gibb, the Bee Gees, in conversation with Marilyn Dennis in 2001 from their home studio in Miami. Yes, Christopher, and here they're talking about how they don't like to read reviews. We don't usually watch ourselves on TV and we don't usually read mm. uh, interviews we've done and, and also we try to avoid critics 
reviews of any form. Only, only simply because we've learnt over the over the years that there's too much information and it gets in the way of more positive things. We watch other people things. on television, we, no? Yes. Mm. Mm. Oh, we're very critical of everyone else. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, actual truth, none of us can read. Uh, right. I think that's so, what it is. I yes. see, yes. I see. We've just learned that it, yeah. we, we don't need to... Uh, you will that's al- one we, extra We'll always thing. find something bad. If, we yeah. read, if, it, if everyone says, read it, it's great, we do, but we'll always find... Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute, yeah, but they didn't have to say that. Are <laughs> <laughs> oh, you so silly girl? So yeah. what, about that, what about that wonderful A&E special one? Uh, that was a great... Oh, yes. Thank you. We had a fun did, doing that. Did yeah. you watch that? Yeah. Oh, well, no. It was live. Well, I know you experienced it, but better repeat it again, Robin. That's true. Yeah, they didn't call me out there. Yeah, I got I got you on that one. Yeah. Did you watch your biography on A&E, the two-hour one? Yes. And did they get that pretty... No, I didn't watch it. You didn't, huh? No. But he That's liked it. I loved it. I thought it was great. I'll tell you the story later. <laughs> okay. I've got the story. We're going to talk to Gail right now from Pickering, Ontario. I just, just don't want to know the ending. That's all. Don't, I'm not going to tell you. There is no ending. Okay. Hey, Gail. Hi. Say hello to the Bee Gees. Hi, guys. Oh, Hi, my God. Gail. I love you. You can join us with your head in a bucket as well. <laughs> <laughs> Come in. Yeah, so What's your question, on? Gail? Um, actually, can I say just really quickly? I've been a fan of you guys since I was seven years old. I love you. I think you're so amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I have your new CD, and it's so great. I love it. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Um, I wanted to know, I know that you've written music for other artists, and I want to know, is there anyone that you haven't worked with yet that you would like to work with? Okay, good question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's quite a few. There's Elton John we'd like to write with and work yeah. with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we love Rod Stewart. But our cho- you know, our choices are probably around about artists of our, of our of our that started around the same time as we did. So it would be uh, people like Rod Stewart, Tiny Lock- Tim, uh, Tiny Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's gone now. He's no, gone. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, sadly, <laughs> sadly, he leaves a mark. He leaves a mark. Yes, he yeah, does. That's yes. a problem. <laughs> Have you worked on anything or talked to Elton John or Rod Stewart or any yeah, of Yeah, we often do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he says get out of the way. And yeah, we do. <laughs> would you like um, a cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> Well, is there, is we're there actually any... good friends. We know yeah. we're all good friends. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. we just don't talk. <laughs> no, <laughs> you never. You, you know, you don't. But you bump into each other quite rarely. You go, but you, hey. But, you... but is it hard to find the time though? Like you say, you want to do something, yeah. and then you just don't get around to it. Or is it something that that you really are seriously thinking about? Like, well, it's just that without we've, them, mm-hmm. we're always thinking about those things. But we ha- we've been very busy for the past yeah, year. I know. So it's not a question of just stepping out and working with someone else. We'd love yeah. to work with someone else. One of our mm-hmm. favorite singers is Elaine Page. We've sort of promised that we would mm-hmm. write a song for her. Yeah. Um, there's many different artists. And of course, a lot of yeah. these artists that we do like to write and work with do write their own songs as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. they want, if they get a hit, they want, some, they want the action to be theirs, obviously. Yes, so. that's right, yeah. Is there a band that you can think of that has been more beaten up by the press than the Bee Gees? Well, no kidding. And they took such a kicking after, uh, you know, the success of Saturday Night Fever, labeled as a disco band. And I think we're about to get to that in this next segment. And so they talk about that and they talk about the legacy of it. But, uh, but yeah, it was tough on them. Speaking of that legacy, Tom, of Saturday Night Fever, that is, that cast a very long shadow that followed the Bee Gees for the rest of their career. We sort of knew that whatever bubble we were in was going to burst. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you move on as quickly as you can. And where we got to was producing other people. And we sort of thought it was over. We thought, we thought that our run as a pop group was probably over at that point anyway. Because we've never thought about what music's called. And the fact that they called it something and then said it was bad didn't really relate that much to us. Um, mm-hmm. We love music. Mm-hmm. So we just kept writing music. And we always knew that what we do will carry us through. So, right. uh, th- and th- there will always be, what would you call them, uh, negative... Uh, bridges to cross 
throughout your career. It's always going to happen to you. Yeah, we've you always, know? as songwriters, yeah. we've always been influenced by different kinds of music, even country music throughout the years. And we've never felt we've had to stick to one kind of music. Um, we're, we're never given it a name. We no, that, we that never kind had of music or this kind of music. When we were writing been, Fever, yeah, it was yeah. it was progressive, blue-eyed, R&B, whatever, soul, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever name you want to give it. Right. But certainly what we were writing was just a project for a movie and no different than Prince writing for Batman or anything else. Okay. So, yeah, it was big Quite and More fantastic. successful. But mm. um, <laughs> what, what, what really th- I feel fantastically proud about Fever is that 30 years from now, you'll walk into any nightclub in the world and you'll hear that music playing. Oh. And that yeah. is the legacy of... Just catch that Fever. person if you can and yes. stop him. You've got to find this. Man, stop him. That's, that's the legacy of Fever, and indeed, his legs. It's yes, he's got his legs. <laughs> Great point. And 40 years later, you still hear those songs, and that is an amazing legacy for sure. Here's a great chat about the song Nights on Broadway. You were speaking during the commercial break, Morris, about Thunder Bay. Yes, I'm sorry about that. No, don't be sorry, because Deanna from CKPR is from Thunder Bay, and she wants to talk to you oh, guys. Okay. Hello, Deanna. I had nothing to do with it. Come on down. Hello. Hello, Deanna. What's your question? Oh, I'm thrilled. I am so thrilled. I want to know when you're going to tour. Yeah, that's a great question. I well, know. Well, we're trying not to sort of announce that yet because we're sort of... Working we're, it out. We're still sort of, yeah, working it out. And we, we don't want to do that until a specific moment in time. But I, I don't think there's any doubt that, we, that it's something we want to do. And yeah. we want to do it in, in, at a certain... We want it to be full-fledged and um, well all the way and well-developed and well-organized. Mm-hmm. Like and me. So, <laughs> <laughs> not like, like my brother. So <laughs> Canada will be on the itinerary, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? Oh, yes. oh, I would think so. Yeah. Please, yeah. Yeah, please, because yeah, yeah. it's been a long time. We were saying, Robert, it was, what, 1989 or something like that. That's correct. Yeah. It's too long. Too long, indeed. Too, too long. long. You yeah. must come back. I've always said it was too long. Yeah, well, yeah. put it away. <laughs> and now that you've done that, we're going to move on to Nights on Broadway. Story behind Nights on Broadway, anybody? Nights on Broadway is a funny story behind that. Oh, okay, Robin's got one. And okay. it was called Lights on Broadway to begin with, and we actually sang it, Lights <laughs> on Broadway. Don't start, don't start, don't they? <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. You did. But it was called Lights on Broadway to begin with. We kept singing Lights on Broadway, and Robert... <laughs> Robert Stigwood said... Go on, you can do it. He said it would sound much better if you... <laughs> Robin, uh, if you didn't sing I'll it. tell you the story about Nights on Broadway. He said it would sound much better if you said Nights on Broadway. He said, why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> and with That's that... Happened, but yeah. no, the funny thing was, we, every time we kept recording it, we kept singing... <laughs> <laughs> Lights on Broadway. All right, this is true. But the strange I, thing I was, and no, hang on, the funny thing. This, and this is where it really gets funny. But when the Boris record, is wiping its eyes, but when and the he's record tearing came out, out yes. it appeared on Billboard yeah. as Lights on Broadway. <laughs> And did we laugh? No. I didn't know when we'd start. And the falsetto story, uh, Barry, is when... Yeah, the blame it at all. Blame it at all! That came from um, the, uh, the session when Reef Martin asked if one of us could scream in any way at all. And he grabbed me by the... Uh, well, we won't go there. Th- ...throat. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, you and said, did. would you uh, try <laughs> singing really You high. do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry works wonders under threat. Well, great memories for main course, that's like for it. sure. The Bee Gees from 1975 and Nights on Broadway. Christopher, that's the first single I ever bought. I have a funny story. I tried to, to perform that song in a band, and uh-huh. it was it was one of the very few songs that we tried that it was absolutely too impossibly difficult. The arrangement was so dense, right? Yeah. And by the time I'd gotten to talking about um, that song with them when I was doing the interview, I felt sort of at ease enough to be able to say, hey, you know, I was in a band, and we, we tried to do Nights on Broadway, and it was it was just far too difficult and uh, uh, Morris looked at me and went it was a bitch for us as well so. 
<laughs> I do remember that. Now, we have played that interview on this show. So just uh, you know, do a search in our archives and, uh, and uh, have a listen because it is great to have that conversation with Morris. And he found it difficult to do those high parts too. So when the original guy has a hard time doing the song, I can't imagine how yeah. a cover band must feel. <laughs> <laughs> More from the Bee Gees when Famous Lost Words returns. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward as we go back to 2001 for a live interview with the Bee Gees from their studio in Miami. Hey, was their home studio like cooler than ours? <laughs> we should almost take a picture of this moment. You just see no, I did. I did take a picture of it. We should post it. It was a nice studio. It was really uh, well done. But, you know, you walk into the main, main studio um, and it's just this big cavernous room. Right. And yeah. so you don't go, oh, my God, this is the BG studio. Could be anybody's studio. Now, there are some moments when it is clearly the BG studio, but that's mostly in the hallways and the reception area, which is really nicely done. And um, and yeah, it was definitely impressive. And it was just so much fun to be there. We were just so excited because they we got there. No one showed us around outside of the group. The band showed us around. So we're, we're talking to Barry, Robin, and Morris as we're walking through their studio and they're giving us the, the tour. So, you know, there was a, quite a bit more to our interaction with them than just this interview, which was an hour and a half live on the radio, Christopher. When's the last time that wow. happened, right? And so, yeah. so we spent like several hours with them, getting introduced to them and just chatting with them a little bit. Now, I don't remember any personal interactions with them specifically before the show, but then we... But, you know, we do all that at the beginning, and then we have a full hour and a half. And by then, I guess they're all revved up and pretty comfortable. But you can hear that in this, uh, in this final, uh, you know, finished product. I wouldn't call it polished, but it is a finished product. <laughs> <laughs> who's the wackiest BG of all? Tough call. Out of the three of you, who is the weirdest sense of humor? Robin. Uh, me, yes. Why, Ro why just think Robin? Because it's very bizarre. Yes. Uh, he, he, has a, he has a way of perceiving things or seeing things that are actually hysterical to Morris and me because yeah. we, all, we all share so many different memories yeah. that actually things that Robin may say, other people may have no idea what he's talking about, but Morris and me do. Yes. And it might be from 25 years ago or from yeah. 30 years ago. But we also share a, yeah. common, a common base, the goon's sense of humour, which is Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which British used to be on the BBC World BBC? Service, so it was heard in Canada as well. So we, yeah. we share a lot of that humour. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the most serious? Oh, oh boy! Wendy. Who would say the most serious? Probably, um, uh, uh, it's a toss-up between Robin and me. I think yeah. Morris is good. Morris used to be more serious. Oh, than thank me. you. But now he couldn't care less. Morris, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, life's too short. You know what I mean? Morris is probably more passive than <laughs> than. Uh, than yes, I've been known yeah. to be called yeah. passive. Well, more like yeah. the craze, really. Yes. yes. Now and again, we'll beat Morris up. So yeah. occasionally, like the craze. I like to live on the Robin, edge. Robin, are you older than Morris? One hour. Yeah, so I, do you I, ever hold that against him when you know no, when there's so a problem? I hold a lot of things against him occasionally. <laughs> well, actually, I sent him out first to check it out because I wasn't sure I wanted to be bothered coming out. You know, uh, so that's yeah. the reason why. Do you regret like, coming out? No, actually. Well, no, Robin said it's a jungle out here. Yeah, it's a jungle. <laughs> Morris likes to live on the edge, sometimes yeah. a building. Who has the most female fans? Oh, well, that would be me, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, I want to yeah. say this, that I looked at some websites. Yeah. Yeah. Steady on. You have a lot of websites, Morris. Yes, see? She's looking at me, folks. I'm telling you, I think he created some himself. I think it's the rumors. You said it and you heard it first here. What's the one thing about each of you that most irritates your wives? Oh, God. Oh, I think just coming home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> 
Arthur's coming in the door. Oh my God, he's home. No, not you again. <laughs> they were so fast with their answers and they made Marilyn genuinely laugh there. When they talk about just coming home and that's what uh, ticks off their partner. That was so funny. Well done. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, the interview finishes with memories of their late brother, Andy. Can we talk a little bit about Andy and uh, thoughts about him today or, or anything you want to share? Because yeah. I certainly got a lot of emails back in Toronto from all over the world about Andy and mm-hmm. how uh, they just remember him so fondly. Actually, uh, don't yeah. move. He's standing right there. <laughs> <Andrew. laughs> we always believe he's really with nice. us. Yeah. He's with you wherever you go. I think it's yes. really nice that even Andy's... Uh, uh, that his his music gets remembered, mm-hmm. and uh, yes, it was a profound shock to all of us when we lost him. Uh, more more so for our parents than it was for us. Uh, although it was bad for us, so we can't imagine what our parents felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, he he lives with us, and uh, and it's nice that the fans have have, um, have really stayed stayed with him and supported him. You know, supported the music mm-hmm. that he made and. Uh, yeah. And um, I feel that there will be more records coming out from Andy, from the record company, um, mm. in the near future. I hope so, anyway. Yeah. Actually, I went, I, to, I went to see Andy and, and my dad in L.A., because that's where they're buried. And uh, it was really lovely getting there and seeing all the fans putting right. flowers there. Yeah. That was really sweet. So I just wanted to acknowledge those fans that were there. That's very, very nice. nice. Yeah, you know, they had an entire wall of their studio dedicated to the memory of Andy, who died in 1988 at the age of 30. By the way, if you're a fan of Andy, I'd recommend listening to episode 202 in which we featured an interview with him from when he was 19 years old. He's so well-spoken and excited about his career. And so it was very touching when we were in Miami at the studio seeing this wall dedicated to him and how they spoke about him. You know, there was still there was still a lot of sadness even though it had happened about a dozen years earlier, you know, 12, 13 years right. earlier that he had passed away. But that that pain doesn't go away. And so they, no. they, you could tell they could still feel it. Also, we did this Bee Gees interview in June of 2001. And about a year and a half later, Morris died of a heart attack at the age of 53, Christopher. Mm. The brothers and the rest of his family were shocked and devastated as we were when we heard the news. Morris looked great when we met him. He was always engaged in the conversation very funny, as you just heard, but he always had a lit cigarette in his hand, even throughout this entire interview. Huh. There we have it, the Bee Gees on Famous Lost Words. Over the past few episodes, we've been focusing on some of the biggest Canadian hit songs ever recorded. And right now, let's continue with this song from 1980. Hey. That's Pat Benatar with Hit Me With Your Best Shot from 1980, written by Eddie Schwartz. Tom, Eddie is one of Canada's preeminent songwriters. His work has been recorded by people like Joe Cocker, America, Donna Summer, the Doobie Brothers, and Paul Carrick, among many others. And then there's that one little song recorded by Pat Benatar. The one you hear on the radio, in the mall, and inside your head at most unexpected times. (laughs) (laughs) Hit Me With Your Best Shot. It's an incredible song, yeah. and it's a, and there's a story to go with it. Of course, the story of a song that almost didn't happen. Eddie tells it best. What happened was that I was playing with Charity Brown at the time, and we were playing at a club in Scarborough. Mm-hmm. And uh, I booked um, a little four-track studio a friend of mine had, and I got a f- few players in the band, in Charity's band, to come out with me. And uh, everything was all set. The only problem was I, I didn't have any songs. Mm-hmm. So um, I spent... Uh, 
a couple of days <laughs> a couple of days before we went in trying just furiously i mean people in the band will probably recall me sitting in between sets with charity brown with a stack of paper writing stuff down so finally i was like in a state of near panic and i uh, was driving to the studio this was after the gig the, the night we had to do it and i don't know some the great spirit must have been looking down at me and smiling because out of nowhere just this phrase popped into my head hit me with your best shot and i started singing it in the car driving to the studio and um by the time i got to the studio all i had was that one phrase mm -hmm. and i had the music in my head i knew how i wanted the, the changes to go yeah. and the melody to go but i had no lyrics so what happened was i taught the band quickly the, the changes and we put it down live off the floor as i said it was only four track so we put the band down on two two of the tracks and i had two tracks left over and i said to the engineer just run it by me two or three times and on the third time just press record in terms of the vocals after mm -hmm. we had the band track done and that's exactly what happened and the next morning i woke up and uh turned on my tape recorder and there it was tom that's eddie schwartz talking about hit me with your best shot now, Eddie, for years, has been a tireless fighter for the rights of creators, and the songwriting community owes him a huge debt of gratitude. He was awarded the Order of Canada in 2012. Wow. He's also a good friend, and one of these days, we're going to have to get him on this show to talk about how Pat Benatar heard the song. Hint, a wall was involved. Wow. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah. he talks about deadlines there. We've, we've talked about deadlines before on the show. Alanis Morissette told us that a deadline can be a great thing for creativity, but it can also totally crush that creative spirit. And Eddie was faced with a deadline and he had the band, he had the studio, he had the melody, he kind of, he had the phrase, but he didn't have the rest of the lyrics. And then bam, it hit him. It, you know, it kind of, kind of all comes together. It turns into a massive hit for Pat Benatar and it's been used in commercials and in movies and in malls, as you say, and on singing competitions in the 40 years since. That's a copyright, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up next on Famous Lost Words, let's continue looking at another Canadian hit. This is an unusual story. A song that went to number one in Canada in 1983, the band breaks up, and then the song goes to number one in the United States a few years later. It's a weird, wonderful story that changed the songwriter's life. That's coming up next on Famous Lost Words. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. Over the last few weeks, we have told you the stories behind some of the biggest Canadian hits ever, including Tom Sawyer by Rush, Life is a Highway by Tom Cochran, Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen. Great stories. Check them out on past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you hear your favorite podcast. Now, have a listen to the story behind this song. hit song by Sheriff, When I'm With You, a hit in Canada in 1983, and in the U.S., six years later. Now, by the time it was a hit in the States, the band had long since broken up, <laughs> and Arnold Lanny and Wolf Hassel had formed a band called Frozen Ghost. Wow. Now, that's when we talked to them, and it's one of the best ever unlikely hit song stories that you will ever hear. Arnold, you see the feeling is much like finding money in the pocket of a jacket that you haven't worn in years. I know that feeling. I find dimes and quarters and go crazy. What's it like to have a song, both of you, um, that you thought would probably have been a hit back in 82, 83, and, and now has found its way to the top six well, years later? It feels real strange because uh, it, it shows that I know absolutely nothing about the industry, <laughs> even though I've been in it for like a dinosaur's age. But um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it should have been a hit back in 82, 83, but, uh, I mean, it's just that kind of an industry. I mean, it, as a writer, it feels wonderful because mm -hmm. it all of a sudden puts you in a different light. You get a bit more respect, and all of a sudden, you're an overnight sensation, even though it was done years ago. Mm -hmm. I just hope we don't have to wait six years for a Frozen Ghost number one song. <laughs> oh, well, tell me, Wolf, what does it feel like? How has it affected Frozen Ghost then? Well, actually, it's been really positive for us as well because what's happening is there's a connection made between the two, and I think what's happening with with Arn, it really it really helps out a sense of credibility because the song, you know, originally "When I'm With You" was wrote written in '81 um, or something like mm -hmm. that, and then you know, with uh, the things that have been going on with Frozen Ghost, it's it's all. It's all sort of part and parcel now, and the kind of press and publicity that we're doing sort of ties the two up. So there's been a, a connection made between between both things. Yeah. So it's been really good. Which has been great press, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, when you write a song, do you ever get the feeling that one is stronger than the other? When you wrote One I'm With You, did you ever sense that it would be a number one tune? It made it to top five in Canada. That yeah. should be mentioned because that's important. It's yeah. important that it be hot on this side of the border, mm -hmm. too. But um, do musicians ever feel like they haven't quite made it until it makes well, noise in the States? Uh, only because it's such a, a big market. I think, I'm not quite sure about the numbers, but I think America is like 55% of the music industry. Mm -hmm. So if, generally, if you crack the American market, you're, you're pretty well going to crack the rest of the world. Right. Um, so it's not like uh, I felt like a failure the first time or nothing, because it did well in Canada. But I always believed in the song, and that's what prompted me actually to go back and buy back my publishing rights and my copyrights about two years ago. What a great story yeah, that well, is. Now, how did you had sold the rights, and well, what well, did you buy back? Un unwilling, un unwillingly, we had sold them because, you know, when you're young, they dangle a carrot and you, sure. and you jump, right? And Because your perspective on life is different, and as a young musician, your main motive is to pick up checks, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you figure, let's get a band, make a record, and pick up bass. Unlike right? now, right? <laughs> yeah, totally with, different than now, with, I with might the, add. Yeah, with the hairline goes that lifestyle. So. <laughs> but um, no, so what had happened is a couple of years ago, out of principle alone, I wanted to buy back my past. It was a mistake. You know, I shouldn't have signed those mm -hmm. kind of contracts. And I went back just to correct what I'd done. And uh, just this way, you know, I figured I, I wrote the song, I should own them. And no pun intended, but you bought it for a song, too. Yeah, didn't well, it? very, 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 oh. very, very, very a little. little. Song. Yeah. yeah, very little. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I always thought the song would be redone mm -hmm. or re recorded. But never did I think it would be re-released with the same mix and then to be released without a video, without a band, and to have it go number one on Billboard. I mean, this apparently is what I've been told is that 12 other, only 12 other writers in Canadian history have ever had a top one hit. That's amazing. So you were in a very select group of people. Yeah, which is really weird. Tell, tell us the story about how it actually found its way back onto Billboard. Maybe, Wolf, you could do that for us. I understand Vegas and Phoenix yeah. were playing it simultaneously with sister stations, That's, and then it sort of yeah, rocketed that, that, from there. Yeah, basically what had happened was they just uh, they took the album off the shelf, dusted it off, threw it on the turntable, and they started to get amazing phones. There was mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of people responding to the song, and uh, it just it built up from there. Other radio stations added it. There was more phones, more radio stations, more phones, and it just built up this massive. Uh, momentum mm -hmm. and then next thing you know it's on the charts and then just all the way up to number one now i know you both have a lot of faith in this tune when i'm with you is a beautiful ballad but do you ever wonder why they decided to pick a sheriff album off the rack dust it off and slap it on the turntable i think what it what it shows me is that a song is a song is a song because radio put this to the top without a video and it just went back to the old days and that's right um but i mean what prompted the radio station to go back into the archives and to resurrect something that was dead originally yeah. is really is, is a total fluke. I mean, I don't know what the reasons are. 
So when you got information that it was on Billboard, did you ever expect it to climb to the height that it has no. actually climbed no. to? No, I mean, it was really weird. I, I thought it would go top 40, and so. then it went beyond that. Oh, it'll go top 20. It's great. I can, you know, I can. It, it, it was always like that. We figured, okay, well, it's 18. Well, that's great to, you yeah, know, get 18. up all the way to 18. The, wor- sure. the worst thing wow. is I found 12. out. <laughs> the, the worst thing weird. I found out was number one when I was uh, driving through <laughs> Kenora, Northern Ontario. <laughs> and my, my, my brother, who was my, also my manager, goes, well, aren't you ecstatic? I'm going, I don't know, there's 15-foot snow drifts. <laughs> I got a number one song, but it doesn't feel like it. Yeah, know? we're just trying to keep warm. The cash flow can't be hurting right now either, no, though, with no, the, the royalties. It you know. feels pretty good. I'd like to say that I'm really hurting, but I'm not. <laughs> Such a great story. And, of course, Frozen Ghost had a pretty big Canadian hit with this song. Love of my life I don't have a lot to give you Frozen Ghost from 1988 and Dream Come True, really romantic ballad, great song that I still get requests for every once in a while when I DJ, especially at weddings. It's it's really unusual. That song was not a huge hit, but it has remained in the collective memory of Canadians everywhere. It's great. I have a little postscript on your Arnold Lanny story because he's he's a wonderful guy and a great storyteller. And, of course, he, as you know, tells the story of uh, When I'm With You. But he also wrote that song for his wife. He was living in his mother's basement. And as I recall, he had no money to buy or anything for Valentine's Day and instead wrote this song for her and played it for her in a donut shop. <laughs> <laughs> Does it get any more Canadian than that? I mean, come on. (laughs) That's great. It really is a great song. What a wonderful lead vocal by Freddie Kirchie, I believe the name of the guy is. You know, around the time that um, When I'm With You went to number one in the States, uh, Freddie realized that he still had a few more miles left. So he forms a band called Alias. They had a huge hit shortly thereafter with a song called More Than Words Can Say. And that was also a big sound. And uh, Freddie was, you know, a lead vocalist on two very, very big hit records. And that went to number one as well in the States. So, Christopher, a few minutes ago, we heard that great interview with the Bee Gees, Barry, Robin, and Morris Gibb, talking to Marilyn Dennis, okay? So listen to this run of hits. It starts in July of 1977. Andy Gibb goes to number one with the song, I Just Want to Be Your Everything, Written by Barry, number one for four weeks. How Deep Is Your Love, just a few months later, is number one for four weeks in December of 1977, okay? A few weeks after that, Staying Alive is number one for four weeks in February of 1978. That is replaced at number one by Love Is Thicker Than Water by Andy Gibb, number one for two weeks written by Barry. That song was replaced by Night Fever by the Bee Gees, number one for eight weeks. By the way, eight weeks, eight weeks makes it one of the biggest songs of all time in terms of length of time at number one. That song, Night Fever, is replaced by If I Can't Have You by Yvonne Elliman, written by all three Bee Gees, number one for one week. A few weeks later, we have Shadow Dancing at number one, Andy Gibb, written by all three Bee Gees, number one for seven weeks in June of 1978. A few weeks later, the theme song from Greece goes to number one for Frankie Valli. It's written by Barry Gibb, two weeks at number one. Everybody take a few months off to take a breath here. Here we go again. Too Much Heaven from from the Bee Gees album Spirits Having Flown, 
number one for two weeks in January of 1979. Then in March, Tragedy goes to number one for two weeks from that album. Then the third single from that album, Love You Inside Out, number one for one week. So in the span of just under two years, about 23 months, the Bee Gees, or at least one of the Gibb brothers, have a hand in the number one song for 37 weeks in that two years. Wow. Honestly, other than the Beatles during those when they first broke out, I mm-hmm. don't know if anyone else has dominated the charts like that. I don't think so. Like there are a few moments when Will I Am and Black Eyed Peas with two songs um, took up half a year of the number one spot on the charts with Boom Boom Pow and I Got a Feeling. One was number one for 14 weeks and number one, the other was number one for 12. So that's 26 weeks. That's half a year right there. And there's moments when P. Diddy or Dr. Dre have kind of replaced themselves with productions or, or co-written songs. But I cannot remember a time when the charts were so dominated for two years by three guys. No, that is extraordinary. I, I can't imagine it'll, it'll ever be repeated, but who knows, right? I can't do that. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's like the Joe DiMaggio 56-game hitting streak of pop music. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there you go. More information about some very cool song facts about the Bee Gees on Famous Lost Words. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Thanks to our technical producer, Adam Karsh. Thank you, sir. And our executive producer, Rob Farina. Also, thanks to the gang at Orbit Media, including Rob Basile, for their help in getting our show to as many ears as possible. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jogic. Talk to you next time on another edition of Famous Lost Words. 